yeah, it's uh, it it it's a little overreaching uh, in terms of what I would <laughs> in terms Tell of what us I would... how you really feel, Jack. <laughs> in a world with no toilet paper. <laughs> One podcast still exists. <laughs> Welcome everybody oh. to No Script, an unscripted <laughs> conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai, and I'm just so happy that you brought back the in the world thing. Uh, if you can't tell that this is an unscripted conversation, <laughs> just listen to that intro again. Press the little 30 seconds backwards button yep. on your podcast player and then you'll know that this is truly <laughs> unscripted because no one has ever said anything that dumb that they wrote down beforehand right <laughs> just had to prove it to you real quick uh, no parts of that made sense there's still toilet paper around it's just being hoarded in people's garages Garage. and there's at least more than one podcast still right. being made <laughs> absolutely it's one of the staples of this time is that podcasts are still being made uh, which is a great I am grateful for at least both listening and for the chance to continue having great conversations around these plays and that we get to kick off our our fourth themed month that's right this is it if you are listening hopefully you already know but if you've somehow wandered into this podcast on this particular episode you have Mm -hmm. joined us at the beginning of a little adventure every season of no script we spend one month talking about plays of a specific type. Rather than picking a broad variety of scripts from all different kinds of genres, we sort of settle in on one thing. We did Musical Month, we did Arthur Miller Month, we did Magic Month, and now in Season 4 we are here to do Mini Month. That's right, Mini Month, and that's going to be a focus on one-act plays. One-act plays are kind of, it's it's an animal of a very similar uh, stripe as, as regular plays, but there are other uh, there are other cool elements about confining oneself to one act, one, uh, you know, scene on stage. So so I'm excited to get to kind of engage the other intricacies of, of that style of playwriting. Yeah, it, it's going to be really fun to talk about, and there's so many... Uh, great playwrights who have great one acts that just don't get the the credit, the acknowledgement that their full length plays do. So we're talking about some of the great playwrights and some of the great scripts. This week we're kicking off mini month with good old Christopher Durang and his play Sister Mary Ignatius Explains It All For You. Yeah, yeah, big long title, uh, just to kick things <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, it's a great play, uh, it's a power-packed play, lots of information, lots of things happen, big sweeping turns uh, that you don't see coming, so I'm excited to get to jump into it. Uh, before we do, however, I do want to say, uh, just a, give a quick plug for our Patreon page. Thank you to everyone who has gone over to patreon.com slash podcast and become a patron over there. Uh, for those of you who are longtime listeners to, to, to this show, 
you know that uh, this show is a labor of love for us. We love getting to have these conversations. We love getting to have these conversations with you. Alas, it is not a free endeavor. There are some costs that we incur, whether through buying of scripts or hosting the podcasts on the site or the considerable amount of time it takes us to uh, put in to, to bring out these podcasts. So if you are a longtime listener or even if you've just wandered into this room, as uh, as we mentioned before, <laughs> welcome, Traveler. Um, and you're looking for a way to uh, be a part of the NoScript commun- community, head on o- over to patreon.com slash podcast. You'll find a bunch of different tiers over there of patronship. The lowest one is for just $1. And at that $1, $1 a month uh, patron, <laughs> boy, this is, this is, <laughs> it'll get out eventually. Um, at that $1 a month patron level, uh, you're going to help out the show enormously. It, it, it goes a very long way in helping us continue this podcast. So if you're looking for a way to help out, head over to NoScript. Uh, patreon.com slash no script podcast and we will see you over there all right well jackson's <laughs> gonna take a second and like massage his tongue because we've got a lot of things <laughs> to say in this episode yep <laughs> this is a w- absolutely wild script if you've not read it yet it it's worth reading just for the shock and awe of it all just for the the intrigue and the storytelling there's a lot of really cool things that happen and some really shocking things that happen jackson will get into to the plot, and then, of course, we'll have many, many little discussions following, I would imagine. But my job is to tell you a little bit about where it came from and where it's come. Sister Mary Ignatius explains it all for you. This was first performed in 1979 in New York City. It was on a bill of other one-act plays, which is very cool. That's a very common way that one-act plays still get performed, is in combo with other one-act plays, the thought often being that a half-an-hour show or a 40-minute show is not something that an audience, it's not enough theater for an audience to show up for. So it's often, they're tied together. You'll do two longer one-acts, four shorter one-acts. This to my, to me seems a little bit like a longer one-act, so I'm a little bit shocked that there were at least four other one-acts on that bill. But apparently on the original bill in 1979, David Mamet had a one-act on there. We're going to do a David Mamet one-act later this month. Marsha Norman and, of course, Tennessee Williams has a whole treasure trove of one acts. We could do a whole theme month of Tennessee Williams one acts. And those are plays that do not see the light of day nearly as much as his really famed celebrated full length shows. The play was presented again then in 1981 with the play that is perhaps Christopher Durang's most popular one-act play, The Actor's Nightmare. I think many theater people, if you've been around theater for a while, you've at least heard of The Actor's Nightmare by Christopher Durang. It is, it's not quite as controversial, shall we say, as Sister Mary Ignatius explains it all for you, but it was written later. And and for a little bit, this was sort of the one-act play that you knew Christopher Durang for. The Actor's Nightmare has had a little bit of a longer life since then. Um, But we were not going to shy away from the controversy and the hard discussion. So we're doing this one instead. In 2001, Sister Mary Ignatius explains it all for you, was adapted into a TV movie starring Diane Keaton. It's had a fairly uh, robust regional theater life as part of one-act festivals. Again, you won't see it as much as you would see The Actor's Nightmare, but it's certainly the the second most well-known Christopher Durang one-act. I think that's easy to say. 
Mm-hmm. And so the, so producible, so easy to just jump right in. Bunch of different, the, really the casting of of uh, Sister Mary is the biggest deal. <laughs> and then uh, other folks that you can fill in a, a lot of different ages and range of stuff. So uh, jumping into the synopsis of the so, of the play itself. Um, this is a, uh, the, the world of this play is a lecture that Sister Mary Ignatius is putting on. Um, you might even be tempted to like kind of do it in a TED Talk style. That might be a fun way to uh, produce it vernacularly. Um, she's presenting uh, various uh, beliefs and tenets of the Catholic Church. Um, she's there talking about purgatory. She's talking about uh, different levels of sin and and judgment. And uh, through much of the beginning part of the play, she and Thomas, her assistant, um, are presenting the various uh, tenets of the Catholic faith. Yeah, so the, um, the Thomas, it's this young boy, Christopher Durang recommends that he be seven or eight years old, uh, st- certainly some sort of star student in her class, and she's putting on this uh, this presentation that would have been like, I mean, in, in my church we would call it confirmation. I suspect there's a higher and more strict version of that uh, that same idea of teaching the basic tenets uh, of the Catholic Church, especially the catechisms, which are the question and answer uh, pieces of writing that have been affirmed by the Catholic Church that help explain the basic tenets of the faith. Mm-hmm. And speaking of question and answer, she's also taking questions from either a fake audience or uh, or, or the audience itself, uh, depending on which question you think she's reading at which time. Um, uh, eventually, though, she is interrupted by a cast of four people who wander on um, as uh, Mary, Joseph, and a camel. The camel is a, an elaborate puppet uh, held by two people. And yeah, uh, those. I also imagined it as like one of those donkey costumes where yeah. it's like one of them is the head and one of them's the butt. And they're just mm-hmm. inside this big kind of poorly made camel costume. Yes, yes, the two legs in the front and the two yeah, legs yeah. in the back. Are the, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so these four folks wander on, and they are, in fact, uh, four more characters. Uh, Gary is playing Joseph, Diane is playing Mary, and then Philomena and Aloysius are uh, playing the camel. And these four uh, kind of... Uh, um, crash in, crash the party, and put on a pageant written by uh, Sister Mary's favorite student from long ago, Mary Jean Mahoney. Um, and they put on this uh, this pageant, which is a story of Jesus's pretty much his whole life, all the way from his birth to uh, resurrection at the cross, or after the cross. And, uh, and then uh, they break, and uh, Sister Mary begins kind of talking to them, trying to figure out who they are. She's not she doesn't remember inviting them to do this, though they claim that she did invite them to it. And uh, what comes out is that Gary, Diane, Philomena, and Aloysius are all her former students from uh, years ago, decades ago. And uh, she begins to suss out from them for what is the remainder of the play, how they have... Uh, held the tenets of the Catholic faith through their life. And it turns out that n- none of them really did uh, <laughs> to some one degree or another. I think it's um, important to remember that the play was written in the 70s and even the Catholic Church has become more progressive and more liberal in the in the 40, 50 years since the play was written. And so some of the the things that she asks them about, whether they've been holding on to these you know, uh, a social 
constraints placed upon people by the Catholic Church. I don't mean to say that in an offensive way. I'm just trying to figure out exactly what I'm trying to say. The, right. The, all of these things that the, at least her version of the Catholic Church expected of people in their lives, they may be unfamiliar to you, even if you're a Catholic in, in today's day and age, uh, but certainly they were familiar to the audience of the time. Well, and these things are are pretty specifically around sex and relationships. Um, uh, uh, Gary is a, a homosexual, and that uh, comes out in in the play. He's gay, and uh, Diane has had multiple abortions. Um, Philomena has had a child out of wedlock, and Aloysius is uh, an uh, alcoholic, an addict, and beats his wife. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so, and actually so, those four things do still seem like they're part of the controversies of the modern <laughs> religious world, not just Catholicism. There's some yeah. things about like birth control, about family size that that the Catholic Church is debating now still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so all of that begins to get drawn out of these four characters. And what comes out is that they actually came with this pageant uninvited to try to embarrass... Uh, Sister Mary. Uh, that's that's probably as far as most of them believed it was going to go. However, Diane, uh, who played Mary in the pl- in the pageant, um, came with a bit more in mind. She at least brought a gun to this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually, she uh, she uh, blames Sister Mary for quite a lot. She has a, a pretty long monologue, like just a, a, a assessment of her life and all the things that have gone wrong since Catholic school, and uh, pulls the gun on on Sister Mary. And threatens to kill her, and and the, and and she in 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 a um, an attempt to do so, Sister Mary. This is a hard thing to sum up, y'all. <laughs> Sister Mary pulls out a gun, distracts her, pulls out a gun, and shoots Diane dead. Um, seriously, seriously, seriously. <laughs> that's what and happens the- in show. <laughs> And the play goes on for another six pages with another death. Gary gets killed at one point um, <laughs> because Sister Mary believes that uh, he has confessed recently and therefore he hasn't had the chance to go back to his partner and thus be living in sin again. And so she kills him so he can go to heaven. Um, she seriously. holds the, <laughs> Seriously. She holds the other two, uh, uh, Philomena and Aloysius, at gunpoint um, until eventually she lets Philomena go and... And, uh, because she holds, has a daughter and she, she wants her right. to go be a mother to her daughter. That's uh-huh. sort of a merciful gesture <laughs> for whatever all that's the, worth. <laughs> all, for whatever all that's worth. One of the big, uh, one of the big uh, angers or, or uh, things that Aloysius is holding against Sister Mary is that she would never let him get up and go to the bathroom. And he's needing to go to the bathroom through the end of the play. She's holding him at gunpoint, not allowing him to go. Lights fade on that. And <laughs> Sister Mary and Thomas talking after there's, there's two dead bodies on the stage. Someone needing to go to the bathroom. And Sister Mary is talking to Thomas about Catholic faith again. Now that is how the play ends. And <laughs> if there were ever a weirder ending, not ending to a play, I'm not sure I've come across it because the story yeah. isn't over. I mean, <laughs> no. the, the play ends with her. And actually at this point, it's Thomas holding the gun in her lap, That's continuing right. to hold Aloysius at gunpoint. And that's just how it ends. Yep. <laughs> like, what happens next? Yeah. 
Yep. What happens next? And like, what happens in this play even? Like, as I was summing it up, um, I, you know, I'm laughing because of the ridiculousness of it, but there's like some really kind of deep, awful things happening in this play that just kind of clip along at a Durang pace. And I'm sure we'll come up with uh, more words for kind of Durang signature place, playwriting and style of play. But this, this, this like just makes you kind of sit back and, and engage something that is like happening to you along with the other characters in the play. Well, some of what is so riveting about the play, despite all the shocking material that is in it, it it's fairly riveting. I mean, I, I have a hard time. I've read the play many, many times because I've had lots of places in my life where I've been asked to direct one X and I always come back and wonder if I could get away with directing this one and deciding not to. Yeah. (laughs) So I've read it many times. And one of the things that always makes me unable to put the thing down is this bizarre. I mean, it's, it's just part of who Christopher Durang is black comic deadpan tone. I want to give you a sense of the tone of this play, and I can't, there's no way to describe it, so I'm just going to read you a quote, and you might get a a sense of the tone of this play. From From fairly early in the script, Sister Mary has brought Thomas on. They've done some catechism question and answers. There's always these sort of tongue-in-cheek but very deadpan, played very flat responses that or explanations of the answers that Sister Mary gives. At one point, he she gives Thomas a cookie. There's this running thing where he gets a cookie when he answers questions right. And then she brings Thomas into her lap, and she tells the audience, this is the quote, Thomas has a lovely soprano voice, which the church used to preserve by creating castrati. Thomas, unfortunately, will lose his soprano voice in a few years and will receive facial hair and psychological difficulties in its place. To me, it is not a worthwhile exchange. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. That's very descriptive of the tone of the script, I think. This sort of irreverent, deadpan comedy, dark comedy. Mm-hmm. And much of that rides on Sister Mary herself throughout yeah. the, especially during the beginning phases of the play. She sets the tone as this kind of uh, this very deadpan. She delivers what uh, her truth is, what she believes truth to be, um, and uh, is not really afraid of just like claiming things. At one point or another, she just like claims extra biblical fact, and when someone calls <laughs> her out on it, she's like, "No, it's it's tradition. It was passed down from priest to priest, and this is true." Yeah. I think she even says, like, not everything has to be in the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not, like, about modern life. One of the characters is like, uh, oh, oh, it's about the the stoning of the woman in adultery. And one of the characters is like, Jesus forgives people. Remember, he didn't stone the woman who was committed adultery or some such thing. And and Sister Mary says, uh, that was a a public political gesture. It's well known that in private, Jesus did stone many women (laughs) caught in adultery. (laughs) And one of the people is like, that's not in the Bible. Not Not everything has to be in the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely wild. Now, what I didn't say in my summary of the context that I deliberately didn't say, because I wanted you to hear the plot before I said this, because I think if you haven't experienced the play, this will make more sense now. This play receives, like, waves of protests when it's performed. There's some well-known protests that occurred, especially around several productions in Los Angeles and St. Louis when it came out. Congress people try to get 
productions of the play shut down. I mean, it is it is very, very controversial because it is very, very hard on uh, on faith, on the institutions of religion. And even in its best light, it's hard on Catholic school and on uh, Catholic uh, uh, education of young persons of faith. That's maybe the best version of it. It's a little bit harsh towards those things. In its worst version, it's a fairly uh, uh, biting commentary on religious systems in general. Absolutely. And and just like pushes all the buttons. It's not surprising to me that people have tried to shut this play down because there's like, I mean, at one point during the pageant, there's there's like a little doll that they're using to portray as Jesus, which they throw up on a cross and actually do a crucify scene in this pageant that they're doing. So it's I mean, there's there's lots in this play that that kind of pushes the envelope, gets the audience to kind of snap out of uh, what their perceptions are of <laughs> in, in at least being welcomed into Durang's perception of the Catholic Church. <laughs> yeah, it, it's blunt and irreverent. I mean, those are words that are used to describe not just this play, but all of Christopher Drang's work. I'm thinking of a play called The Marriage of Bet and Boo, in which one of the characters, Bet, has a series of miscarriages throughout the play. And in the stage directions, the way that those miscarriages are theatricalized is that the doctor will simply walk on stage and drop a baby doll to the ground to signify that it's died. I mean, that is that irreverent, shocking humor that characterizes who Christopher Durang is. The other play of Durang's that we've done is Vanya, Sonia, Masha, and Spike, which has received enormous praise and is easily his most popular work anymore. It's it's played everywhere now. It was on Broadway for a long time. It's a star-studded productions. And kind of the common thinking about why that play has done so well is that Christopher Durang is a brilliant, excellent, crazy good playwriter, but so many of his plays you just don't want to see. Right. <laughs> it's a rough time. Right. It's just like I, I'm not sure I want to sit through some of the what a lot of the work that he has produced. That's just me. But, you know, the, the popular culture, I think, has thought that a little bit too. And so when he wrote something that was a little bit more accessible and doesn't contain so much of that harsh, shocking, irreverent humor, it does very well because he truly is a brilliant, gifted player. Playwright. Mm-hmm. And that that is on display in in uh, Sister Mary Ignatius explains it all to you as well. The the journey that we go on is I mean you're you're kind of like tractor beamed into Sister Mary. She is a uh, charismatic in one of his notes on kind of casting Sister Mary Durang specifies that we need to be able to like her. There has to be a reason why you know forty years of students have have uh, accepted her tutelage. Why she is teaching? There has to be some degree of likability about her. It's just she also has this underlying awfulness. <laughs> yeah, well, she's very dogmatic. Many of the character descriptions that like reviewers will write, I'm not sure if Durang would be in agreement with this word, but it's a pretty common adjective used as we've read and looked at different reviews, is fanatic. She's a religious fanatic, is how lots of people describe her. Again, I don't know that Christopher Durang would be comfortable using that word to describe her, but at right. least that's how some people have interpreted the character. Mm-hmm. Certainly a fanatical belief. Um, devotion to the the belief structure of the Catholic Church. Now she's, I think she's very controlled. She's very level. She's very manipulative. Probably is is a, is a word that you could play with as the actor playing Sister Mary. Um, certainly, I think her relationship with Thomas throughout the play shows some of that off. She has, arguably, occasionally a fairly you know 
tender, loving relationship with Thomas. Some, you know, a, a pretty much a teacher's pet, maybe even like a dog level at some point. She's just like giving him treats to perform. But uh, but there is some sort of connection between those two. So so you got to justify that somehow. Yeah. At the end of this play, as in the end of many of Christopher Durang plays, is actually one of the features of his plays. Not all of them have it, but many of them do. That he includes these very long, very uh, full of sort of detailed explanation about how he feels about the tone and the casting and these different moments. And so that is included at the end of this play. And it, Christopher Durang actually describes the relationship of Sister Mary and Thomas as sort of a puppy doing tricks. That she's trained to do these tricks via a treat. But he also wants to be very clear that this relationship is not to either of them supposed to be manipulative. It's rooted in they care for each other. Sister Mary clearly clearly likes what she does as a teacher, I think. And she doesn't see herself as manipulating these students as much as she does saving them from hellfire. I mean, her particular religious worldview is especially black and white. If you do these things, you'll get to heaven. If you don't do these things, you will go to hell. And so her perception is that she's saving these people from hellfire. And Thomas as sort of a star student and his ability to recite the catechisms, his ability to uh, process information and spit out what would be the, the kind of black and white pony show Catholic answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Especially like you see that kind of come out in the first half of the play, especially. What what keeps this play? F- I mean, w- one one. <laughs> one thought that came into my mind at the beginning of this this play was like, wow, I'm learning things about Catholicism right now. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm a, I, I, I have not studied Catholicism. Um, and so there was it, actually the beginning has like, some some facts around the belief of the, the Catholic Church around like hell, heaven and purgatory, especially. But what else is going on in those in those early scenes of the play um, other than just a TED talk on? <laughs> on uh, Catholic faith. Well, we what we're doing is we're learning about Sister Mary, right? And we're doing that through learning how she interprets pieces of the Catholic faith and her particular uh, very black and white view of those things. Like I'm, an example I'm thinking of is when she describes how unbaptized babies used to go to limbo before a certain council several hundred years ago decided that they actually went to purgatory. But all the babies before that decision are still in limbo. And there's not even sort of a trace of religious mystery about that. Not a trace of like, well, I don't really know what might have happened or it's, you know, this is what we try to say happened, but it's sort of a mystery. No, no trace of like, well, it's such a bummer that all these babies are stuck in limbo. It's just, boom, this is what happened. And then after this decision, this is what happens. And that's just the way it is. So we learn about her in that sense. But then we also learn about her. One of the reasons why the taking questions from the audience bit works so well as the early sort of motion for the play is that Christopher Durang has imagined that in these questions she receives, she receives several questions about her family. And so we're early introduced into the kind of life Sister Mary has lived, and we begin to get a sense of what in the world happened to produce somebody (laughs) like this. And what happened was a lot of terrible things. Yeah. She just keeps bringing up stories of her childhood. And I think at one point she said, like, she has a family of 26 and like... Eight. Well, stop there. I mean, come yeah. on now. <laughs> 
She's got a family with 26 brothers and sisters. Yeah. That was her childhood. And then this, I mean, the reason why that note is so especially uh, powerful and poignant in the play is that one of her deeply held beliefs that she interacts with almost every character in the play with is the belief against any birth control. That God is in control of uh, childbearing, basically, and you shouldn't use birth control. And it's like, yeah, but you grew up with 26 brothers and 26. sisters. Surely and not you've only- seen the problems that might be associated with that. And not only that, her description of what has happened to her brothers and sisters is five became priests, priests, seven became nuns, three became brothers, and the rest were institutionalized. Well, right. That's so. the other piece of her childhood, right, is that mental uh, problems, um, mental illness was a significant part of her childhood. Her mother was very mentally ill to the point of needing to be institutionalized because she thought her husband, their father, was Satan. Many of her brothers and sisters had to be institutionalized, etc. Yeah. So, so yeah, you do dig up quite a bit about uh, Sister Mary just from those initial asides. And, 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 and whether or not you believe that uh, all the questions that come, like, the question is always the same when, it, when she reads it. It's, tell us more about your family. And she then, like, settles back into the, oh, yes, well, that's, my family. Isn't that so bizarre, <laughs> though? Like, she loves to tell these horror stories just terrible about her stories. childhood. She gets yeah. so pleased. The stage directions are very clear that when when a question comes to tell the audience about her family, it's, she's delighted by the opportunity to do it. Yeah. <laughs> And all of and she it often comes right after a really hard question that she just ignores, like why is there pain in the world or something like that, or yeah, what is I the mean, sovereignty of God? That's one of those <laughs> examples of that just really tongue in cheek, irreverent humor. She'll like read. She has these stack of questions, and she'll read, "Why is there evil in the world if God is so loving?" And she just skips it. And she goes, tell me more about your family. (laughs) Oh, my family. (laughs) And so we learn about Sister Mary by virtue of her um, her fanatic explanation of Catholic beliefs. I'll use the word, though I think Durang would quibble with me. We learn about her through the descriptions of her childhood. And we also learn about her through the small question marks she throws in some of the the way she thinks about these beliefs. Skipping the question about evil in the world is a good example of she clearly doesn't believe she has all the answers or even suitable ones. She's not willing to go into some of it. Another example that also is a particularly great irreverent joke on behalf of Durang is when she describing why birth control is wrong. And she says something like, you know, God, regardless of what you think about the wisdom of that decision, has built sex for procreation, not recreation. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a great joke, delivered well, deadpan. I mean, it's played straight. It's a really nice joke. But it is also a little bit of a look into, even she says, regardless of whether you think that was wise or not, regardless of your opinion, she has certain questions about the religious beliefs that she holds so black and white. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You almost wonder if, if in a, a different set of, if she wasn't required to be this this teacher for others, what what other things she would question. Um, but but nonetheless, she delivers it, kind of toes the party line, and and uh, and and has taught taught children for generations, which kind of makes it that much more. You would think at least that it would make it that much more uh, heartbreaking for her to have her students show up. And and them not have internalized what she or not be living out what she has taught them. I think it has to be heartbreaking. And, and I think in order for the character to not be Cruella DeVille of nuns, you have to believe that she earnestly hopes the best for her students and has a certain affection for teaching and for bringing these kids up in a way that is truly, she thinks, going to get them to heaven. And so when she discovers one after another that these kids these now adults have been in her sense living in mortal sin and thus going to go to hell that that is not it's not just she has some sort of like nose in the air well you should have done better i don't agree with what you did blah, blah, blah. but she has a, a deep sense of i i have messed up somehow uh you know this is really bad for their lives i, I earnestly want to save them in her sense of being saved which is the only way that her decision to shoot Gary makes any sense yeah absolutely the tactics of of uh sister mary are reprehensible to us but the motive is pretty pure if you if you go from her perspective i mean i'm not sure every actress who's played or has played it that way but that i think that is the way that the the script is intended yeah i like that we've wound our way around to defending the fact that she shoots two people by the end of this play (laughs) that is not what we're doing Very little about Sister Mary is morally defensible. And that is, of course, one of the points that Durang is making. Is yeah. Look at the look at what the logic that someone like this has that you might even agree a little bit with in the beginning if you're a religious person. There might be parts of that first half of the play that you're like, I'm, I'm kind of on board for that way of thinking. Or I don't have as, an, as extreme logic as you do, but I, I'm kind of on the same wavelength. And Christopher Durang says, well, look at what that pays off. Yeah. Look at what that causes. And the end result, nothing is justifiable. And no. that's what <laughs> that's how the play makes one of its points, which is this harsh criticism of religious system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree that the dominoes kind of falling is the, the middle part makes this kind of almost almost fair exchange of ideas and then you see that once you give all the power to this person um what they're willing to do with those ideas goes beyond beyond what is comfortable certainly and and also beyond what is morally right so we have this quartet of old students that come to embarrass they claim they come to embarrass sister mary now if you've ever been in a theatrical production and you've had an ensemble and a director that really believes in the idea of ensemble you may have spent some time trying to create answers to questions about your character like how much did my character know about this what does my character think about this what kind of history does my character have what kind of discussions have we had off stage you 
create the world of what your characters knew as part of the process of building a, a, a play. That's, you know, you create the world of the character. Christopher Durang has helped and maybe overhelped in some cases his actors along, and he has provided some ideas about what this quartet has shown up to do. I'm just going to read you part of his, this is from his author's note at the back. I think to make sense of the plot, one would have to imagine Diane calling up the other three with an extremely vague plan. Let's put on an old pageant, which is so silly and which will disrupt her lecture, then the point of the intrusion will be to eventually tell Sister that she's not fondly remembered. Or maybe the plan is only to put on the pageant just as a joke to themselves on their past. The vaguer you allow the plan to be in your head, the less saddled with unnecessary subtext you'll be, and the more easily the various confrontations with Sister will play. And then he notes that Diane, of course, has to know that something more is coming because she brings along a gun. That's a, I mean, that's a fairly prescriptive view of, of what this quartet has shown up to do, but one that I think makes sense in the context of the show and, and is a fairly solid advice if you're playing it, that the, they don't really have a plan going in. I mean, if I were directing the show, that would be what I would ask the quartet, if not for the author's note. What are you hoping happens here? What right. did you talk <laughs> about before? How did all four of you show up together? Yeah. But Durang has filled in some of that for us. What do you think about that explanation? Yeah, it's uh, it it it's a little overreaching uh, in terms of what I would. <laughs> in terms Tell of us would, how you really feel, Jack. <laughs> in terms of you know what I what I'm uh, what I would be excited by as a director or as an actor approaching something. Um, that's kind of some of the excitement of both of those roles is trying to figure out what that is. However, from a playwriter's perspective and from looking at the piece and kind of knowing, uh, reading the whole director's note and knowing what he's going for, it makes a lot of sense because. Because what ends up happening in the kind of the second part of this one act is Sister Mary drags out of these characters this information. It's kind of a slow um, reveal via Sister Mary primarily. It's not it's the lines of the play do not necessitate the characters coming and wanting to pin their uh, lifestyle on Sister Mary and kind of show it off to her. It is it is a slow reveal from them. She pulls out bits of information. They misspeak once or twice, and she notices those moments of misspeaking. So in terms of structure of the play and what the playwright has tried to do with the later part of the play, this uh, approaching the situation by these four characters without a plan serves that that goal that they're kind of in it to like make a ruckus maybe embarrass her a little bit but aren't really there to bear their souls and their lifestyle choices in front of sister mary and i actually sort of like that durang includes that note because i think it's a note about something that actors don't, don't often think to do uh, and we don't spend a lot of time typically in these discussions discussing production, so I suspect we're near the end of this part of the conversation. But I will say that I'm not sure actors always think that it's okay to for for the answer to what was your plan to be I, my character didn't have one. I think oftentimes the sense is, well, we got to over figure out what my character was thinking and what their goals and tactics were. And of course, goals and tactics are some of the basis of drama. But it's also some okay sometimes I think as a director as a 
play, right? For your characters to be humans and to not have much of a plan. To, right. to know what they sort of want kind of going in and to let those characters see what happens by consequence of their actions. So I like that Durang included that note because I think it's something, I, I'm not sure that that is an answer many ensembles would have come up with given mm-hmm. the chance to create that particular set of scenarios for themselves. I'd agree. There's, there's, there's certainly the, the act of breaking into a lecture. Um, if I were analyzing a script, that's, that's a premeditated act sure. in my mind. Mm-hmm. Like the, if, if you're planning to interrupt something with a four page pageant about the life of <laughs> Christ, which includes a extra biblical camel, um, <laughs> <laughs> that that that's that's a premeditated act most of the time. So the direction to kind of back away from that, let it be a little bit more sloppy, is is a is a fun one. Yeah. Now you discussed that the character of Sister Mary sort of pulls out of all four of these old students the things in their life which she finds so reprehensible or so consequential given that it's going to send them to hell and that's a really core part of those characters that they're not there to show off like you said and in fact for some of them these are things that are are attached to a very deeply emotional part of themselves many of them describe how in order to be where they're at they had to overcome the shame that would have been associated with what they're doing based on their upbringing mm-hmm. yeah yeah they they yeah, they're they're carrying a lot with them still. Even like Aloysius, who has this kind—I I mean, is I believe it's supposed to be played as kind of funny and probably evocative for a lot of people who went to Catholic school and were not allowed to get up to go to the bathroom. Um, even even that, his like slowly throughout the scene, not being allowed to leave to go to the bathroom, has this kind of like this this. Uh, almost a trauma and again with a note from Durang that it's not supposed to be played for trauma but still like underneath it somewhere is this this carrying of what has happened to them and it and its effects into the present sure and and the way that Aloysius or not Aloysius that's the name of the nun from doubt (laughs) Um, the way that Sister Mary who is the nun in this play Aloysius is one of the students uh, the way that Sister Mary responds to each of these four students description of their lives is where some of not all of but but a lot of the harsher criticism of religion is couched. For example, she has an especially violent reaction to the description of one of the characters having abortions. She has a very violent reaction to the description that one of the characters is gay. She's a a very violent reaction to the description that one of the characters has a child out of wedlock. But then she reaches one of the characters who says, no, I'm married, I've got kids, we don't use birth control, we're practicing Catholics. She says, oh, great, somebody worked out. And then the character almost by, I think the stage direction is something about how they're sort of filled with guilt and the need to to say this out loud, says that he's uh, beats his wife on a number of occasions. He's very depressed and he's considering suicide. And Sister Mary's response is, well, you know, those things are basically allowed. Right. Now, yeah. that, I mean, that's a pointed, pretty sharp criticism of the religious system that Sister Mary is a part of. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, and, uh, and- in drawing attention to it, it's kind of the opposite of the rest of the attacks. The rest of the attacks are kind of, especially Diane has some very direct 
um, attacks to be said in her monologue against the church and against Sister Mary. But that one is like for us as the audience to process. It's it's something uh, that none, none of the characters are necessarily bringing. It's not brought up over and over again how hypocritical that is. But it's just like stated as this 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 thing that's that we know is wrong as the audience and then kind of moved on past it. So it's almost a, a meta critique as opposed to a character's specific critique. Sure, and and it's it, it's a very clear. I mean, the criticism that the the church, at least as Sister Mary understands it, is thinks that all these things send you to hell, but this thing is fine, and you're going to go to heaven. I mean, that's a very because Durang has written such a stark black and white interpreter of a faith in Sister Mary, it becomes very clear to make a criticism of the church with such a black and white character. Um, I, I I don't know how other persons of faith react to the, those kinds of criticisms. I it, it seems to me that because Sister Mary is such a black and white interpreter of the faith, she becomes a... Um, and an unrealistic interpreter of the faith. There, those, there are those people in the world, sure, but I'm not sure that she's very representative of persons of faith, and maybe that's one of the ways in which the play has aged across 40 years, 50 years. Yeah, I think it's interesting to think about... Um even even the play itself is Miss uh, Sister Mary talks about how how we're moving into liberal times or something like that, <laughs> um, and this was thirty plus years ago um, that that this play was written, um, and and I think it's I think also not only is it is it on a track historically, but also it's on a track uh, from the from the the from the standpoint of the journey of the play like we said earlier there's kind of a bait in here in the early to middle part where we're like yeah okay your ideas and your viewpoints are kind of kind of understandable i see where you're coming from but by the end it's blown completely out of proportion so certainly by the end where she's shooting people and justifying it by faith we're like ah no this is this is a caricature at this point but we've already kind of been culpable via the early parts of the play by just listening to her reason and and not being able to figure out how she how to beat her or how to counter the reason yeah, and and the the idea of shooting someone to send them to heaven is another point where that pretty sharp criticism of the religious system that Mary is involved, Sister Mary's involved in, becomes really pointed, right? Like if you murder somebody at exactly the right time, just after they've made a confession, before they've gone back to their sin, that is what's going to send them to heaven. I mean, that's something that I think most audiences, the vast, vast majority of any audience that sees this play would agree that that is wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. But I think even a even a mostly religious audience would would say that's wrong. That's not yeah. right. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> you murdering someone does not. No, that doesn't work. No. Um, <laughs> it's interesting too that that end of the play, having two people kind of gunned down on stage, is another thing that I don't think translates really well um, to our current situation. Um, and and this is indicative of a lot of plays. Like guns in plays are a whole thing for a long time. And I think in just our, our recent uh, cultural vernacular, they've become radically less 
we 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 rightly have become less able to laugh at those moments. Yeah, um, it's probably true, especially the you know, it's also like a play about schools. <laughs> yeah. And students in some ways and so a, a gun in that context, you're right. It probably does it it has a different charge now than it would have. Mm-hmm. So it's that's worth carrying in your mind too. Is like kind of the shock that we're describing at having someone shoot someone at the end of the play is is maybe something that is culturally vernacular now, um, as opposed to back then. But I mean, anytime someone someone is shot, as and and then you try to uh, morally justify it, it doesn't doesn't really work. Yeah, and there's lots of places that have guns and have people getting shot. I, the the way that the gun ends up right that sister mary has had it the whole time, the whole time. <laughs> so Di- so what happens is that diane who's the, been the ringleader of we learn been the ringleader of this quartet of students come back the adults now to to embarrass her ostensibly uh, that diane's been the ringleader of that group and she's brought a gun along she has a whole monologue about some of the really terrible things that have happened to her in her life that have brought her away from the faith and because she's left faith she's been left with an anger about the lies that she was told, especially by Sister Mary. And some really terrible things happened to her. Her mother died in a really uh, painful, visceral illness at the end of her life. And then, like, on the day her mother died, she was raped and impregnated. And then in the counseling to get over the rape and the death of her mother, her psychiatrist seduced her and sort of abused his power in that way. She's had a really hard life. And she pins a lot of the anger that she feels as a response to all of that on the way that she, the things that she was raised to believe about life by Sister Mary. And so she says all this while she's holding everybody at gunpoint. Again, Durang provides some pretty specific direction about how even Diane's not really supposed to know what she's going to do at that point. And, and so Sister Mary pulls... What I just can't, I can't even think of a way to stage it that doesn't seem kitschy. She right. basically like says, Oh, look at that over your shoulder. Right. <laughs> and Diane falls for it. Yep. And Mary pulls out her own gun from inside her habit and shoots Diane dead. All of that to say, Mary's had the gun the whole time. The whole time. She's been packing heat this whole lecture. <laughs> Uh, wild just wild yeah so we're, we're coming along towards the end of our our time here i do want to just take a second it is mini month um it might be worth talking about what makes this play or or what about this play is specifically served by the structure of it being a one act what is it about uh this 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 wild ride with uh, sister mary ignatius and the and the these four characters who are kind of bringing bringing up their their life before that is specifically served by this time constraint of you know 30 to 40 pages yeah so One of the ways in which this play is sort of uniquely a one-act is that it subscribes to a rather old series of playwriting concepts called the Unities. It is a play which represents the unity of time and place in in such as it is a one-act, which means that the, the action of the play has a unity of time, so it all takes place one right after another in the amount of time that it takes to view the show. So rather than a play that takes place over a week 
or uh, we talked about guards of the Taj last week that took place over 48 hours or whatever. This play takes place over 30 minutes or 40 minutes. So it subscribes to a unity of time with no breaks in that unity of time, much as an old playwriting theory would have called for any one act of a play to have a unity of time. It also has a unity of place. The location never changes. So in that way, it it is contained within one sequence of events that takes exactly the length of time it takes to occur in one location. Yeah. Now, not all the one acts we're going to talk about do. Several of the one acts we're going to talk about have several scenes. I even think that the David Mamet play we're going to talk about later in the month calls the different scenes acts, which is sort of complicated, even though it is a one <laughs> act. It is several acts within the one act, which is which is sort of odd. But this play is very much sort of classically one act. The play takes place over 30 minutes, 40 minutes in one location. No scene breaks, nothing like that. I think the other thing that we get from it being a one act is this wild ride mentality around it and and the ability to laugh at this play, I think, comes from it being a one act. You can imagine a world where uh, we we spend a whole play with these characters, right? Like we go oh, back see, and... I can't. That's one of the reasons why it works as a one act for me. <laughs> That's, that yeah. I, I really can't imagine spending two hours in this world. It's emotionally <laughs> well, exhausting to spend 30 minutes in this world. And that perhaps is why Christopher Drank doesn't write a full-length play and why one acts exist as a genre is that right. there are some stories in some worlds which work for one period, one half of a play, basically. One act, one 30 to 40 minute, 20 to 40 minute, whatever, period. I would argue that the, the 30 minute to 40 minute thing works, the term work being make it a comedy. Um, I think this play is is a different play if you do it as a two hour and that's like you got complicated subtext of these people. There's like the, the abuse of Sister Mary to them in, in college and then like you, you're on your way to seeing why Diane uh, is motivated to kill her at the end. It completely changes the play to do it in a two hour format. I agree that the one hour format makes it a Durang comedy, makes it uh, able for us to laugh partway through and go on this weird journey of uh, identifying to like seeing it all come apart by the end. I think that is only able to be done within the structure of a one act play. Yeah, it's interesting that because the play is short, and we've we've used lots of different time markers to describe this play yeah. and other one acts. <laughs> a one act is a very vague term. It's just like a, in some ways, this is a short play. It could mean as short as a fifteen minute play. Whatever. This is a very short play, maybe longer for a one act on the longer side, but not necessarily. Anyway, because it is short, we don't have time to flush out every little thing and the mystery and the question mark of it all is part of the experience we don't see certain things that we would see in a full length like subplots offstage discussion i mean what we see is what we get and because it's short what we get is very little and that is part of what works for a show like this, is at the end of it, you're sort of left going, what? <laughs> and that's, I think, part of the experience. And, and yeah. in that way, that's part of what makes the play so riveting. I talked about how riveting it is to read, because moment to moment, you're just going, what? Absolutely. You're being blindsided out of nowhere. Suddenly, four people walk up on stage, and you have to wonder, like, what, why? Who are these people? We haven't, we haven't interacted with them at all. And you just don't get to know. They, you, you're learning in the moment with, with, with the characters as they go. 
Well, I think that is probably all the time we have for Mr. Durang and Sister Mary. Yeah. Uh, it's a, a heck of a, a heck of a play, a heck of it's an a experience. Heck of a play. It, it, it is shock and awe in so many ways, and then there's so much brilliant craftsman, you know, just just great craftsmanship that goes into this script that makes it worth it to experience and to see how somebody as expert at as Durang at the absurd world of irreverent shock comedy and how great that can be. Uh, it, it's worthwhile to experience the play just for that. Absolutely. Let alone everything else. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. And like, what fun characters to try to jump into, especially Sister Mary, like to land Sister Mary as a role. That'll be a fun time for you if you get to do it. So if you get to land that role or any of these roles, or if you just read the play, read it for scenes, read it for college, read it for whatever, we'd love to keep talking about this play with you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The username is at Podcast on all of those platforms. We also have a Gmail, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for someone to just chat about this wild and crazy play, hit us up on any of those sites we'd love to keep talking about it with you absolutely if you'd like to recommend this podcast to others which we would really appreciate you doing you can do that by sending them to podbean to spotify to apple podcasts or to google play we're on all those places but one of the easier ways to find us if you have a facebook is that we post a link to the new episode every monday morning when they come out on our facebook yeah, yeah. So keep an eye out for that link and for the next play, uh, which we are doing of many months. What's the next play for next week? We've already said it before, right? Next week, <laughs> we are discussing Far Away by Carol Churchill. Uh, one of the great one acts in existence, as far as I'm concerned. I'll be yeah, interested yeah. to hear how you respond to it, it and all of you out there, too. So we're looking forward to that discussion. Until then, I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.